Welcome, everybody. I'm uh, Wouter Den Haan. I'm a professor here at the uh, London School of Economics. Before I introduce our speaker, first uh, a couple announcements. Our guest, Danny Roderick, will talk for roughly 30, 40 minutes, and we expect to end this meeting at 7.45, but these things are a bit uh, hard to uh, predict. So after he has uh, talked about his new book, then uh, there will be opportunity for, uh, for Q&A. So uh, everybody, please turn off your mobile phone, otherwise you get people staring at you and Danny staring at you, and that may not be a good thing. The, uh, the hashtag for this event is LSE Econ. Uh, the plan is to record this event, and if everything will go as planned, it will be made available at the website of the LSE. So after the event, there's a possibility to buy the book and get it signed. So let me now turn to the uh, more important part and introduce today's uh, speaker. Professor Roderick is the Ford Foundation Professor of International Political Economy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. And he's actually also a LSE Centennial Professor. And I think you're in your third year, second year? Of the second. Uh, he has written several books and zillions of uh, academic uh, papers. His work covers a really wide range of uh, topics, globalization, trade policy, politi political economy, the role of democracy for growth, and several others. And he's actually a very modern economist, and he has a blog. And the blog has the subtitle, Unconventional Thoughts on Economic Developments and Globalization. So please join me in welcoming our guest. Thanks. Thank you uh, very much, Walter, for, for the introduction. It's, it's always uh, great to be um, at, uh, at LSC, and I want to thank the school and, and this time especially the Department of Economics for, for hosting me um, uh, and, and, and treating me uh, so well. Uh, it, it's, uh, I'm very happy that, that uh, this time it also coincided with the, um, uh, with the publication of um, my, uh, my current book, um, economics rules. Um, let's see. There you have it. Um, so you see the, um, the, the, the covers of both the UK and the uh, US editions. The one on the left is the UK edition and the one on the right is the US edition there. Uh, as far as I know, they're uh, exactly the same. They, uh, um, they even have the same typos, I discovered, uh, uh, to my regret later. Um, but, it, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's really my, my attempt to, uh, to, to deal with uh, uh, an experience I had of moving from, uh, um, from, from Harvard to a, uh, the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, which is an extremely interdisciplinary environment. And um, uh, I found myself, really, for the first time in my, in my career, um, sort of essentially the only economist in a uh, in a highly multidisciplinary group of uh, um, with a preponderance of uh, anthropologists and sociologists and uh, I would say and maybe political theorists and legal theorists as well and uh, and one of the things that I discovered and maybe it should not have been uh, a major surprise uh, is that uh, um, those other disciplines um, have as many um, 
uh, as many uh, misunderstandings about what it is that economists do as, as we economists have of them. Um, and, uh, and I had always sort of uh, counted myself as a somewhat progressive economist who was open-minded and, and sort of uh, saying that, you know, there are all these other disciplines. They were, they're really, you know, uh, worthy of our attention and we should read widely and so forth. But so it came a bit of a shock to, uh, to, you know, to experience this where sort of all those other disciplines thought, uh, you know, we were, you know, as economists, basically idiot savants and nothing much else. You know, we were good perhaps with, uh, with math and, and statistics, but, uh, you know, clearly we were just uh, out of our depths when we were talking about uh, social uh, uh, facts. And, 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 uh, um, and so I, 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 you know, I thought that, uh, you know, I would write um, a, a book that um, would explain uh, what is good about uh, uh, economics to uh, to non-economists. So about sort of half the objective of this book is really to explain economics uh, to non-economists, uh, and uh, and so the book ends uh, with two sets of ten commandments. Uh, one of those ten commandments is for non-economists. Um, but at the same time, as I thought about why is it that sort of what I do as economists and why I, I understand from economics is so different from these other disciplines think it is, it also became evident to me that at least half the problem is with us economists, that, that we have a very, it's just not that we're not very good at communicating what is it that we do. Um, it's also the case that we have a very, um, we have the wrong idea of um, how exactly economics is a science. Um, and so, uh, so then the second objective of this book was to, uh, to explain econ economics to economists. Um, and, and so uh, just, you know, at least my take of what is it that, uh, how is it that e e economics works. So that's, that's what I'm going to, to try to summarize. And I said there were two sets of ten commandments. The second set of ten commandments is for economists. And I'll show you these for, uh, these for you uh, at the end. Um, so uh, the, um, but since we are, we are uh, in, in Nobel season, uh, let me start uh, with the um, relating some of my um, uh, thinking to um, the last couple of years of Nobel Prizes uh, in, in economics. Um, the, this year's prize has not been announced yet. I think it's going to be early next week. Uh, so so uh, last year, uh, as many of you know, it was Jean Tirole uh, from the Toulouse School of Economics. Um, and, um, and when he got the prize, it's fair to say that the economics profession uh, was overjoyed. I don't think there is a single person who thought that this was a, a prize that was not uh, deserved. And so all these journalists who, who know, whose job is to explain what is it that economists do, um, so, you know, first, you know, you call up everybody. Everybody says, uh, oh, Jean, Jean is, is, you know, Tyrone is absolutely wonderful, you know, long-deserved prize and so forth. And then they say, okay, so um, what's the big idea? What is it that um, Jean Tyrone actually discovered or what's sort of the thing? Um, and then they would sort of, you know, go and say, oh, you know, sort of in this set of models he did that, in that set of models he did that. And, and so it was very frustrating for um, economists to actually try to figure out 
what is it that uh, sort of Jean Tirole had done to actually get him the, the thing. And then sort of, a, you know, the, I, I believe it was in the New York Times where he, when he was interviewed, the, the, news, you know, the journalist asked him basically, you know, just, just tell me, what's the big idea that you've contributed to economics? So what is it? And Jean Tirole said basically in, in, in exasperation, he says, look, you know, it really all depends. You know, I've worked, uh, most of my work is on, on, on regulation. And and uh, it depends, you know, sort of you have a different model of regulation for the Internet as you do for uh, the transport or uh, for, for debit cards. And so I've, I've just worked out essentially um, uh, the details of how those specificities actually matter to regulation. So there was no big idea, uh, but it was a collection of uh, models that were uh, both sophisticated and highly relevant. So in that sense, actually, uh, you know, Tyrol was doing something um, that is at the core of what sort of best economists do, is to develop uh, a, a contextual series of applications uh, of, of economic ideas. Um, now, let me move one year uh, back, and this was, a, it seemed like it was a, um, a Nobel Prize of a very different nature, uh, because it, you know, uh, here are two of the three uh, that won the prize. Here is uh, Eugene Fama on the left and uh, uh, Bob Schiller on the right. And of course, you know, it, it, there was no question as to what the big idea with each one of these two were. Um, Eugene Fama stood for the efficient market hypothesis that financial markets are efficient. You cannot beat them. And if you actually try to intervene, the government tries to make things better, uh, more often than it's going to uh, screw things up. Whereas it seemed like Bob Schiller's idea was exactly the opposite. Uh, that financial markets are inefficient. Uh, they are all over the map. They're excessively volatile. They're driven by behavioral and other uh, uh, considerations rather than fundamentals. So the big question for journalists then was, what was the Nobel Committee thinking of giving this prize on the one hand to a person who says financial markets are efficient and the other who says that financial markets are not efficient? Um, and actually, sort of when you stand back from this a little bit, you realize, of course, was that there are some circumstances in which Fama is right, and there are some circumstances in which uh, Schiller was right. So one way of interpreting this prize was actually to sort of, you know, give it a prize to sort of these fundamental ideas that are, again, also right in their own specific context. And, of course, in a way, the reason that the third prize was given to an uh, econometrician um, who is not pictured here is because actually he was developing the tools, figuring out, in fact, which perspective did a better job of, of, uh, of, of, of um, uh, explicating how financial markets really work. So uh, let, me, let me now draw back from, from this to uh, what is essentially the, the, the central argument, the central theme of, of my book, and I discovered, um, to my consternation, that in fact the, the basic idea in my book had been uh, articulated uh, in 1938 by Keynes, but of course that should not have come as a surprise. Um, he's, he's probably said everything uh, that's useful in economics uh, much better than, than any of us can. But here is really, uh, in a nutshell, the idea um, that economics is a science of thinking in terms of models joined to the art of choosing models which are relevant. Okay? Um, 
So the science part really has to do with these models. And, this, and something, it's something that I, I really want to emphasize, and I'm going to try to explain why models are important and, and why that makes it a science. Uh, although not the kind of science that economic economists often portray their, their profession to be. But then there's also the second part, uh, which is the part about choosing the Fama versus the Schiller. Um, that is that when is it that you're going to, for example, think of financial markets as largely efficient, so you can apply efficient market hypothesis, or when is it that you want to apply a different kind of a model um, uh, where, in fact, uh, the inefficiency or the excess volatility prevails. Uh, that, as Keynes uh, said, is an art, or as I call it in the book, it turns out I call it a craft, but well, it's largely the same. It's sort of the crafty part of economics. Uh, although I'll tell you a little bit about some of the science, some of the science that goes into that craft uh, as well. Okay. Now, uh, it's hard to under um, under uh, state how important uh, these models uh, are to um, economics. These sort of uh, uh, these creations uh, of the mind, sort of. Uh, often uh, highly mathematical, uh, but also uh, in, in, you know, simplified abstractions uh, of, of, the, of the real world. Uh, there was a, some years back, there's a wonderful uh, piece um, of mock ethnography uh, that um, uh, a, a macroeconomist by the name of Axel Leonhofud uh, produced back in 1973. It was an article called Life Among the Econ. Um, and, and the whole article really revolved around the, um, the worship of models uh, by, by economists. And, and here he talks about sort of how status relationships uh, in, in the economics profession are determined by how good you are at fashioning a model. Um, and sort of that, that, uh, uh, that, that the status is only to be achieved by making models and that most of those models, he thought, seemed to be of little or no practical use. Um, and, and he was not a big fan of models, and therefore he says this probably accounts for the backwardness and abject cultural poverty of the tribe, namely the econ. Um, I, I have a much sort of higher opinion of, of models, and I'll try to explain to you why, in fact, they're, they're useful. Um, he also talked about um, sort of, you know, the relationship between economics and other disciplines, and he said... Um, so in explaining to a stranger, for example, why he, a member of the econ tribe, holds the sociogs or polsize in such low regard, the econ will simply say they do not make models and, and leave it at that. So you know, this is 1973. This is certainly in the case of political science um, has, has changed. Uh, but to some extent, it's still one of the key differences uh, in the social sciences between those who are sort of who do their work and research uh, in, in using these simplified abstractions, uh, sort of these, these, these models, and, um, and, and those who think that that's not uh, the way to, to go about it. Finally, just one last thing uh, about, uh, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the Leunhofut uh, piece is, is he also drew attention to the fact that there was a lot of disagreement uh, among uh, sort of which models to use. And this is going to be one of the important points I want to get across, is that the diversity, the richness, and variety of models with different implications is, in fact, a virtue 
uh, of economics. It's, 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 uh, it's a feature, it's not a bug. Um, and um, what, uh, uh, what we need to do is sort of figure out how to better navigate uh, uh, this, this, this diversity. In other words, use this art or this craft, uh, as, uh, as, as Keynes mentioned, uh, uh, much better. But here he's talking about, for example, the difference during you know, sort of the, in the 1970s between the micro model and the macro model. Um, and, and, and sort of, uh, sort of, and the lack of communication between these different sub tries because they, they work with different models. What I'm going to argue uh, is that that in fact precisely uh, uh, the problem uh, with economics uh, often uh, in the way that it relates to others, in fact it thinks of itself, is that it thinks of itself as a science in which uh, a succession of better models replace older and less appropriate models. Uh, so that's sort of like a, you know, an idealized physics kind of a uh, uh, epistemology where you basically every succeeding every new model replaces an old one. Um, uh, that's not a very good description of physics, but certainly it's not a very good description of how economics advances. In fact, economics advances by expanding the variety of these models and figuring out how to use them, not actually by sort of newer ones replacing older ones. And that's sort of uh, a, you know, a key uh, mistake that often economists make, and therefore they get themselves into all kinds of problems. So the issue is not choosing in terms of Leon Hooffoot here, uh, you know, choosing the micro versus the macro model. It's just figuring out which one is going to be relevant when and being good at that. That's the right way to think about it. So, but why are we going to, why do we actually need these models? Why, what is the advantage of models? I know no better uh, explanation of this uh, than uh, probably the shortest story ever written by, uh, this is a piece of fiction by Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, it's called On Exactitude in Science, and literally the entire short story is here. Um, and uh, I'm not going to ask you to read it, I'm just going to explain it. The, the trouble is explaining it actually takes longer uh, than the story itself, uh, but still I have to do it um, unless we sort of go through it uh, together word by word. Uh, Borges is talking about a land in which the uh, science of map making, cartography, uh, had developed uh, to such an extent that map makers became extremely uh, um, uh, uh, obsessed about getting all the details right. So what that meant was that, you know, sort of, they were making maps uh, of, uh, uh, of, of regions of the empire that was as large as entire cities. They were making a map of the empire that was as large as an entire region. And then they didn't even sort of stop there. They said, why stop there? Why don't we actually uh, end up sort of producing maps that are one-to-one -one accurate? So they started producing maps of a city that was as large as a city, a map of a region as large as a region, map of the empire as large as the empire. But then, as Borges uh, notes, um, uh, sort of later generations uh, basically discovered that these maps were totally useless. Uh, you know, you couldn't use them for anything. And as, 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 uh, as Borges writes here, essentially these maps were dispersed into the sands of the desert and nobody, they basically were, um, were, were left to rot uh, because they were so completely useless. So uh, the analogy here is exactly uh, uh, appropriate for why is it that when you're going out to go someplace, uh, it would actually be completely unhelpful to you to have a map that's one-to-one. 
uh, that is you actually want a map that you can use that's going to uh, focus on those aspects of the direction or, or, or modes of transport you want to take and those aspects of the topography or the transport network that are relevant to you and will abstract from, ignore, neglect uh, those that aren't. Um, and that's how you can make progress when you're getting from one place to another. It also means, so the map that you're going to use is not going to be a replica uh, of uh, what uh, the, 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 the terrain that you're going to traverse. It's going to be highly stylized, uh, 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 simplified, abstracted version of it. Second point is that depending on where you are going and depending on what mode of transport you're going to be using, you're going to need a different kind of a map. Uh, even if it is for the same geographical area. So if you're traveling by bike, you're going to want one that uh, has, has the bike trails mapped and the, the, maybe the elevation of the terrain in there. But if you're traveling by the subway, you want a map that has the subway network in there. Um, and if you're traveling by car, something else, and, uh, obviously. So, uh, so depending on uh, uh, what you need the map for, uh, it will be a, a different kind of a map. So the point of Borges was to say that, that the notion that you can have a science in which you are progressively getting, you know, sort of closer and closer to representing the actual reality is, is, a, is a completely um, a useless uh, notion of science. And in fact, uh, science always has to simplify and abstract. Uh, and it's only when it does so uh, in a useful way uh, that, that, uh, that, that it... Uh, uh, that it gets ahead, and, and that's what the maps, uh, that's what the models of economists are, and that's why I think the, off, the, the, the uh, frequent criticism of economist models, which is to say, oh, but the real world is so much more complicated, completely misses the point, completely misses the point. Um, so um, I, I re recommend a, an article by a sociologist uh, called Kieran Healy, um, which talks about this issue in the context of other social sciences. Unfortunately, um, I, 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 you know, I cannot tell you what the title is because it contains profanity. Uh, but uh, it's basically called um, F star CK nuance. Okay? Um, and he's basically just making the same point that the sort of the, 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 typical, um, the typical critique uh, that, you know, this somebody's work, somebody in others' work, sort of it just lacks the nuance, that it just, you know, you, you really need, need to get com more complicated, completely misses the point, uh, that what we need is useful abstraction, useful simplification, and not uh, complication and complexity. Okay, so uh, I've, I've, I've sort of basically uh, told you what the, the key argument uh, in the book is. So, so the, the, I, I um, steadfastly argue that models are key to the scientific nature of economics, and that's important. It's not the empirical work per se, okay? So I'm not going to talk much about that, but I think it's a key point. It's not that we can now do all these RCTs, for example, you know, sort of um, randomized controlled trials is that, that's what you know, makes economics a science. There's no way in the world you can interpret the results of an RCT without an underlying, without a model behind it. Uh, so every time you're, in fact, making an inference from an RCT, uh, you're extrapolating using a, using a model. So models are, are, are critical to that enterprise. Uh, secondly, very important, and this is where I think economists largely uh, 
you know, get it wrong in terms of what is it that they do. Uh, we never, so economics does not advance on agreeing on settling on what the right model is. And I think everything in economics that says, so let's, you know, we, this is a better model than the other, this is, you know, sort of, uh, this works and the other one doesn't, um, is, is, um, has, has, a, has, has the wrong uh, idea of the kind of science that, that economics is. Um, so economics, so to speak, is, is not advances by sort of this vertical process of every model becoming a better approximation of the reality. Uh, it's actually a horizontal model of uh, having a library of useful models. Uh, so to tell the story of how markets work, you know, you first had Adam Smith. Adam Smith works with the competitive market model. Um, and then we have, you know, sort of, you know, in the 19th century, you know, French economists working on various models of imperfect competition. Now we have a better model of how, you know, uh, imperfectly competitive markets work. Uh, then we have, you know, sort of later on, we have in the 60s and 70s, we have models of imperfect information, asymmetric information, incomplete information. Uh, so those teach us something about how markets markets where informational shortcomings are important work. Now we have behavioral models where people are not rational, and now we have ideas about how these markets are going to work when people are not uh, the rational actors that, are, uh, uh, that they are supposed to be in, in, in some of the benchmark models. Now, uh, have imperfectly competitive models displaced perfectly, perfectly competitive model? Absolutely not. Have models of asymmetric imperfection displaced those other models? Does behavioral economics displace uh, those other models? No. Uh, they all give us an insight about what might happen uh, and we use these contextually uh, to understand um, uh, sort of um, uh, the world by trying to figure out which are, what, how these models might be uh, more relevant. And I'm going to come to that because as the way I'm going, you can see that it's going to, for my argument to make sense. We you know, absolutely have to have a way of picking and choosing what the relevant models are, right? So, that's, so I'll have to say something about that. Um, so I, I think sort of the, the, uh, the argument in the book uh, is that sort of once you shock economists uh, out of this view that they have this sort of, you know, uh, you know, um, you know uh, the economy works in some misguided physic, physics envy kind of a way in which, you know, uh, we're always developing better models, by, but instead in, in this kind of, of way that I'm arguing, uh, that uh, this way of thinking about economics really uh, helps counter many of the, many of the, um, uh, many of the criticism of economists. Well, this model is too simple. Yes, we have another one. Pick. Um, we just have to figure out which one is the more relevant one. You, you, you always have to pick. And anytime you're making a statement about the world, you're using implicitly a model. So you're picking something. Economics gives you a way of doing this in a... Uh, in, in a more uh, uh, disciplined, uh, in a disciplined manner, um, or you think um, you know, sort of, you know, economics is too much focused on markets that markets working well. Yeah, here are some. Here's a lot of models where, in fact, markets don't work well. It's also in the in the economics. Um, so uh, I'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. And here, I think, is sort of what I've intimated uh, uh, as well, because. Economists, the official ideology of economics, the official ideology of economics is still this notion of, you know, better models replacing worse models, or to put it in empirical terms, uh, something that absolutely never happens, which is that we'll 
will test the models, and those that pass the test will survive. Those that fail will discard them. No, never happens. We've never, ever discarded a model because it's actually empirically failed a test. Um, and, and so that's, that's not what we do. Uh, but because that's the official ideology, um, uh, there's too little uh, attention about how we actually navigate uh, among models. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we, we, don't, we do a very poor job of teaching our, our students um, uh, about how to, how to do this. And, um, and in fact, uh, those applied economists, those economists who are very good at figuring out, ah, oh, this is the sort of, you know, in this kind of a country, I want to use this growth model. In that country, I want to use that kind of a growth model. Sort of they, they develop instinctively and, and, and not necessarily as a result of, 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 a, of, of a way of, um, uh, of having uh, thought about it uh, thoroughly. So we're very good at generating these models, very bad. Uh, at picking uh, when is the most relevant. And a lot of our debates is precisely because we have not a good, you know, sort of you know, all the debate about sort of you know, recovery from the recession, whether to use a new Keynesian approach where, you know, sort of the Keynesian uh, policies would be important or use a sort of more of a classical approach or a classical models where Keynesian policies would backfire. Uh, all of that is really um, that, that uh, uh, is, is, is a reflection of that. Okay. So, uh, I just want to highlight a little bit more about the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the variety. Uh, I want to highlight a little bit more the variety and diversity uh, of economics that these models uh, uh, provide. Uh, because I think often the view of economics from outside is that we have this sort of, you know, this highly um, uh, um, deterministic um, and universal uh, answers on s certain types of questions. It turns out, actually, that there is absolutely no question in economics to which the right answer is not, it depends. Uh, and, 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 and the virtue of a model, the advantage of a model, is you might say, what kind of a science is that? What kind of a science is that? You get that, that the answer to every question is it depends. Well, it's, it's a science precisely because it tells you what it depends on. And why is that helpful? Well, it's helpful because if you know what it depends on, then at least you have a chance on seeing where, whether those conditions on which it depends are those that apply in that particular context. Okay? So that's why that's going to be key in terms of nav you know, choosing among different models, is that if you, if you know what a specific argument depends on, which is exactly what a model does, then you have some chance, some chance uh, that you might be able to discriminate in the real world uh, between saying that this model is more relevant to this context than that model because uh, you know, the, the, the critical assumptions of that model are closer to what we observe in this setting as opposed to that setting. But I'm, I'll come to that. So let me just run through some questions that you might be interested in. Uh, what's the effect of uh, uh, minimum wages on employment? What's the effect of expansionary fiscal policy on economic activity? What's the effect of capital inflows on economic performance? What's the, on economic growth? What's the effect of trade liberalization on economic performance? Answer, it depends. Uh, you know, sort of in each one of these cases, you know, there are some benchmark models. If you've taken only one course in economics, uh, the chances are that you've spent 95% of your time, if not 100% of your time, with a model that gives you an unambiguous answer to this question. 
okay? But trust me that 80% of the work that economists do after their undergraduate uh, you know, career is actually working on models where those conclusions are reversed, okay? Um, different models are going to produce different models. Minimum wages produce um, uh, less employment if labor markets are competitive. What if employers have some monopsony power? In other words, they think they can affect the wage that they're paying to their employers. Ah, then minimum wages can increase employment. Yeah. Capital inflows. Well, if you're in an economy which is constrained by lack of savings and you have a lot of investable uh, opportunities, uh, more capital inflows uh, will expand, will increase economic growth. What if you are in an economy where, in fact, the constraint is not investable resources or lack of savings, but, in fact, it's a, um, uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the fact that there are sort of poor institutions in that economy uh, that, um, uh, that, that reduce the incentive to invest? So the problem is on the investment demand side rather than on the supply of investable funds side. So what happens? In that economy, a lot of money comes in. Is it going to go into investment? Absolutely not. You know, that central distortion hasn't disappeared. It's still not helpful to invest. So all that money is instead going to go to consumption. And there might even be uh, adverse second-round effects. For example, the money coming in can appreciate your real exchange rate. The appreciation of the real exchange rate further depresses the, investment to in, the in, in, in incentive to invest in tradables. And more money coming in investment falls and tra actually growth goes down. Okay, so uh, it's because of this actually rather than, you know, together with many other difficulties of empirical evidence, uh, that empirical ev evidence on these kinds of questions are rarely going to be conclusive. And even if you have a very finely done uh, empirical study that is able to pin down the outcome in one of these cases, uh, then you always have the suspicion that, of course, that, you know, sort of it worked here, but will it work there? In other words, a result that you get uh, in some countries or in particular communities, some villages, uh, does not necessarily apply uh, elsewhere. Uh, at best, what you have figured out uh, is that you've been able to pin the effect in, 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 uh, in, uh, locally. So, um, and here is sort of then the, the question that I've been sort of circling around. Uh, the craft or the art uh, part of economics is, okay, we have all this diversity of models. We have all this sort of richness. Uh, each one of them uh, sort of, um, each one of them uh, developing a particular causal connection, a particular causal chain. Uh, how are we going to figure out, and, and the task here is just to figure out uh, which causal effect dominates others? What's the most relevant causal thing that I'm I'm, I'm focusing on. So, for example, going back to the, to the minimum wage example, right? Uh, so the issue is, am I going to use a, a model uh, that produces um, the effect of a minimum wage being lower on employment, or am I going to use one that's where the effect on employment is, is possibly uh, positive? Well, uh, the model is going to help precisely because it, it is explicit about the chain of events and the initial circumstances the critical assumptions that cause those outcomes. And so therefore, uh, the, what enables you in principle to choose among them is precisely doing 
to the extent that you can formally, but often informally, and that's why I call it a craft, is sort of confirming or validating uh, these different uh, um, uh, chains or different um, uh, uh, initial or, or sort of critical consumptions. So one thing to do is basically to, uh, to verify uh, the critical um, uh, assumptions. What do I mean? Is basically you'd figure out, you ask, what are the critical assumptions of this model? In other words, the things that if you were to change them in the direction of greater realism, or if you were to change them, you would get a significantly different result. Okay? So uh, you know, those of you who sort of know uh, Milton Friedman's old piece on the sort of the methodology of economics, and, and he basically said, look, assumptions don't matter. Of course, that's not true, and that's not actually what he really meant when, you, if you read the, um, uh, the, the article, uh, the critical assumptions are critical. Um, and in the context of, for example, the minimum wage discussion, uh, sort of one critical assumption is whether is the demand for labor competitive or is it monopsonistic? Are employers, those people who are hiring workers, are they behaving largely in a competitive manner or are they behaving largely in a monopsonistic manner? Do they think they have control? Uh, do, they, do you think they have some impact on the wages they pay or do they basically take the wages given? So those are the critical assumptions that differentiate those two models. Um, well, it, you know, we can verify them. We can ask, is the nature of the market such, what we observe, is it more <laughs> like the first or the second? So we can look at rates of entry. We can look at the size of firms. Are firms small or large? Um, uh, uh, we can look at the nature of technology. How easy is it to uh, substitute uh, uh, for, other, for labor by using other kinds of factors of production? These are things that, can, that are observable, and even if it's not going to pin the answer down, it's still going to um, uh, tell us uh, it's still going to tell us something about to what extent the critical assumptions uh, of these two models hold uh, in the context that we're looking at. Um, so uh, the second thing is to, to actually sort of to verify the mechanisms, because what the model does is basically telling you exactly what the mechanism is, exactly why is it that in one case a minimum wage produces an increase in employment, in the other case a decrease uh, in employment. So they, they, they say something about how firms are going to be behaving. So in this particular case, you want to ask the question, is it plausible that these firms are actually internalizing the effects of their hiring decisions on the wages that they pay, or is it not? Um, so again, you cannot pin it down. You won't, perhaps won't be able to run a RCT on this, uh, but it is, it is possible to, to informally um, uh, uh, verify whether, in fact, the, the mechanism that has been posited uh, uh, works uh, in the way that the model says it does. The third, the one that, in fact, we do most often, is to directly test, the direct, the, the directly check for the implications uh, that the model produces. In one case, you get an increase in employment. In the second case, uh, you get a decrease in employment. Why don't you test it? Well, the trouble is that in, sort of, uh, you know, we can do this most of the time uh, after the fact, uh, in the best of circumstances. It's very hard to do it in real, in real time. Uh, but this is still one of the, the, the things that, uh, that's, that's in the arsenal of things where we can actually contextually distinguish between different models. So if we find out that, you know, sort of, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the fast food 
um, you know, restaurants in, uh, in, in Pennsylvania, uh, in fact, did not respond by reducing employment uh, to an increase in minimum wages, then it must be the case that the monopsonistic model or perhaps any other model that produces that result is, is, is more relevant than one of the perfectly competitive one. And finally, another sort of a, a very powerful uh, effect of um, having an actual model and how that helps you navigate this landscape of picking out uh, and figuring out um, uh, sort of which model uh, is the more relevant one is to verify the incidental implications. You might have a model that, has, that you've written down because you're primarily interested in the implications of minimum wages on employment, but that model will also produce other implications. Uh, that's what we call sort of the comparative statics of the model. Uh, for example, a model in which employers are monopolistic uh, versus one where they are perfectly competitive has different implications for how much they will pass through onto their prices the effect of increases in input prices. So monopolist is going to price, in, you, know, sort of, you know, in general, not always, uh, is more likely to uh, pass less of the input price increase onto its final prices. So that's a completely incidental effect uh, that comes from simply the internal operation of the model. Uh, that's a separate independent check on whether the, a model is, is relevant or not. Okay? So these are sort of four broad strategies uh, that smart economists, when they are doing this, informally use. Uh, we've actually never sort of, uh, we don't teach this stuff, and this is what I mean by uh, not, um, uh, not being very good at, at, at navigating uh, across models. But this um, is, is, is give us some hope that this can be done, not just exposed, also in real time, although with the, with the caveat, as I said, that this is going to be still informal. This is the kind of thing, for example, my, my colleagues and I often use in our applied work on growth diagnostics. So when we talk about sort of, you know, what will work in terms of stimulating growth in different countries, that's really a contest of, you know, sort of picking out, picking among different growth models. Every growth model has a different uh, implication for what policy is the most effective policy. Um, and we go through an examination of something like this to say, well, you know, this model may not be, you know, is not going to be particularly relevant because its critical assumption is this, uh, let's say, and let's say that its country is constrained by external capital, yet the country, let's say, has, uh, has AAA credit rating in international financial markets, and therefore the critical assumption doesn't hold, so throw that model away, that one doesn't apply. Um, so, let me just very quickly note two things. One is about the relationship between models and math. I think this uh, is, again, is, 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 uh, is, is sort of misunderstood. They come together, but they are independent. They're not one and the same. So models do not require math. Uh, some of the best models in economics actually are, don't have any math in them at all. Tom Schelling, any of you have read Tom Schelling's um, uh, work on, on, on game theory? Uh, essentially has zero math in it. Um, now, um, uh, and some of the sort of, um, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, similarly work of Munzer Olson, for example, uh, very insightful, um, has, has no math. Uh, but they work with models. Uh, does not make any mistake. So what's the, the role of math is, is just to, you know, 
make explicit what the assumptions is, uh, make sure that when we're making from, when we're moving from critical assumption to result, that we're not jumping steps and that we're actually following the right way, that we are logically coherent and consistent in our argument. That's why I tell my, my, my students that, that economists use math not because they're smart, but because they recognize they're not smart enough. Um, because, you know, if you were smart enough, you could just, you know, solve that, you know, sort of model with, you know, five equations, five unknowns, just do it sort of, you know, in your own head. And, and, and many economists are smart enough to do that. Uh, I have to say that, you know, in my own personal experience, I, you know, I mentioned Tom Schelling. The beauty of Tom Schelling's models uh, really evaded me until I actually saw them laid out, you know, you know, fully in sort of, you know, sub-game perfect Nash equilibrium mode and so forth, you know, terms that he's never used. Um, so Tom Schelling is smart. I'm not so smart. Um, second thing about the role of, 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 of rationality uh, and, and self-interest, again, I think uh, this is sort of somewhat orthogonal uh, to models and their usefulness. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, more and more uh, economists are using models uh, where uh, rationality doesn't, um, doesn't, um, doesn't hold. Okay, so uh, I think when you look at sort of the science of economics uh, in this way, I would argue that, uh, that much of the criticism of economics uh, misses, the mark. This misses the mark, that these are simplistic reductionist theories. Absolutely, that's the point. Uh, that we make inappropriate universalistic claims? No, we don't. We have a model for everything. Um, that, that we sort of reify markets or market incentives? No. Uh, you know, there, we have plenty of models where, uh, you know, markets, uh, uh, you know, um, go wrong. Um, and we analyze markets because that's, that's what we know how to do. That there is a conservative bias. Well, I'll just pass this. Uh, uh, the, um, that we do disregard social and political embeddedness. No, there's inordinate amounts of models of political economy institutions where we, we're clear about how markets has, has these other prerequisites. Um, okay, so let me just... Uh, Say that, so I don't want to exonerate economists totally, right? Um, so I think there is, there is, there is a problem. Uh, I think there's a problem that sort of that comes once, you know, sort of missing, you know, the, the point of um, uh, Borges, right? So you can get so enamored by these models that you can actually start to believe that you're describing reality, and that's going to lead to overconfidence and hubris. Um, you can mistake a model for the model. That's probably the mistake that economists make the most because our official ideology, you see, is just we're going to, you know, the, the holy grail is we're going to figure out which model is the right one. And if that's your holy grail, of course, it happens to be the one that you believe in is, becomes the model. Uh, and, and, and you think that is the, the answer, is going to give the answer regardless of context and, 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 and time period. Uh, so that's, that's one of the, the mistakes we often do. Uh, you know, I think we're getting better at this as we become more empirical. That, that there's sort of, you know, there was a there was a, a um, uh, um, opposition, for example, that the resistance to dropping the uh, the rational uh, behavior kind of assumptions. I think we're getting better about that. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, this is, is you know every science uh, has this problem, which is once you have a set of tools, you have a toolkit, uh, then you're going to look at 
predominantly at questions for which the toolkit works, that is that you're going to be looking for the, your keys where the light is rather than uh, where, it might, where you might have, have, have lost it. And without question, we suffer a lot from this. Uh, this is a general problem, unfortunately, that, that uh, is, it is, um, uh, it, it, it's crazy how much implicit political economy theorizing economists do. Despite the fact that they have tons of political economy models, uh, often they will have in the back of their mind some very implicit uh, model that, um, uh, that, that um, uh, leads them to, um, to, 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 to reach certain policy, policy results that are not warranted. Just one example of that from sort of an earlier part of my career was I was struck by how for example, the World Bank uh, it's no longer true, but the World Bank for the longest time had this incredibly strong preference for uniform taxation. Um, and then if, if everything you know in public finance is that taxes should not be uniform, right, because there's an inverse elasticity rule and so forth. So it makes no sense for taxes to be uniform, yet wherever the World Bank went, it said taxes ought to be uniform. Now, when you push them, the first thing they would say would be, well, that's what economics says. Then you say, hold on, it's not. Oh, okay, right. Um, and then eventually we'd get to the point where there's, there's this story, oh, but, you know, you know if, you, if you discriminate, if you make differences in taxes, you know, there'll be always these people who will want to sort of may take advantage of it. They'll want to sort of, you know, manipulate the system. They have in their back of their mind some rent-seeking model of political economy. But it's done highly informally without asking the question, if you actually did that formally, explicitly, develop this model of rent-seeking, would that actually lead you to the policy conclusion, endogenizing what you're doing informally? Would that actually lead you to recommendation for, uh, um, for uh, uniform taxation? And the answer, of course, is it depends. Uh, you know, it might or, or it might not. The problem, however, is that on the, in this political sphere, economists were doing something that they're completely, you know, sort of would criticize everybody else, uh, you know, if they were to do it in the economic sphere. Where is the model? Where is the model, right? The sociogs and poly, what is it, polycise and the sociogs, you know, we look down at because they don't make models. Uh, well, that's essentially uh, what happens when economists are, are doing this kind of, of implicit political economy theorizing. All right, uh, so uh, let, let, me, uh, let me end uh, with two things. One is, is just to, to sort of uh, to summarize by saying that I think once we understand that, that, that what economics is is really, is really a portfolio of models, uh, I think, uh, first, I think it makes us more liked, right? I mean, you know, it's just that we're not, you know, we have... You know, uh, we, can, we can reinforce whatever prejudice you have because we have a model for that. But I think more importantly, I think it just makes us much more humble uh, about how much we, we, we really know. And I think, so if you look at the financial crisis, uh, sort of the antecedents with that being excessive focus on the efficient market hypothesis kind of ideas uh, that I think significantly underestimate under uh, uh, underplay the validity of instead the Schiller view uh, that financial markets are, are, are not efficient. In the context of developing countries, the excessive focus on the Washington consensus that was you know, ba based on a very simple but single universal model of how these economies worked and what they were suffering from, I think those were sort of the results of, of uh, you, know, you know, sort of uh, some of the mistakes we've made, we've made by mistaking a model for the model. Um, and that sort of it's, so I think it allows us to, uh, you, know, you know, expand our understanding of, vari of various social phenomena. I think it's, and I may, this is my hope, uh, that actually, you know, 
could could ease some of the gap uh, with other traditions in social sciences that are you know cultural, humanist, constructivist, interpretive. It's rather than saying I don't understand, it's just you know basically saying, well, this is an interesting idea. Let's write down a model of it. Uh, the point being, let's actually understand what the causal argument you are making is and what does it actually depend on so that I can differentiate it from other arguments, including uh, uh, mine. All right, so the final, the other final thing I'm going to say, I mentioned that there were two sets of ten commandments, uh, but I, I've already spoken for too long, so I don't want to put, you know, talk about uh, both of them. So I'm going to put only one of the two. Remember, one of them is for economists, the other is for non-economists. So... Um, so I'm going to take a show of hands to see sort of whether there's a preponderance of economists or non-economists, and I'm going to, uh, you know. So those of you consider yourself, I, I hope there's no uh, stigma attached now, uh, <laughs> so that, that you, you, want, you want to feel like, you know, sort of by raising your hand, you're making yourself a target for others by saying you're, you're an economist. So those of you who consider yourself economists or at least sort of close to one, um, um, sort of raise your hands. Okay, this might be hard. Those of you who are non-economists, ah, uh, what? Uh, I'm not so sure. I'm just going to put up the Ten Commandments for non-economists. Okay, and just stop here. Thank you. Thank you. There's, there's some time for, uh, for questions. So please wait until one of the stewards has given you the, uh, the microphone and try to limit yourself to one question and try to keep it short. And we're going to collect a couple of questions and then um, our guest speaker will answer them. You just want to point yourself? Okay. Um, all right. So I'm going to try to do this. Yes, the gentleman uh, in the back. Well... If Bernard Casey from LSE. You describe economics as a dismal science. Do you think that particular branches of economics are more dismal than others? I'm a labor and social security economist, and I always <laughs> believe that we are particularly dismal, but maybe my experience is limited. Well, you know, I'll just say briefly and with, with apologies to, to my... Uh, uh, to, to, to the chair, I'm not sure that, that I think economics is not a dismal science, but there are some fields in economics that are in more dismal state uh, than, than others. Um, and I think, uh, you, know, you know, sort of, I would say that in the last sort of 20 years, probably macro has been, you know, distinguished in that, in that domain. But um, I, I, with, with apologies to, uh, to, my chair, to the chair. It, it, it's your evening. I won't say anything. <laughs> Yes. Um, David uh, Orton, um, I'm a student uh, here. Uh, so, um, you said that uh, you know economic discipline mainly developed on on a horizontal dimension. However, I, I I don't think this analogy is quite right. I think we must admit some vertical development of the discipline. I mean, we have similar problems 
uh, and very different models. And um, they cannot all be right on that specific model, uh, on that specific problem. I'm not saying that they are not valuable in one way or another, but just saying that all models are okay, we'll keep them in our portfolio, I don't know, I, I don't think it's quite right, I would say. I think it is a bit obscure because on, our, on the side of economists because we refuse to explicitly engage with uh, the, um, the models themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think, we, you know, we might have a, a sort of more extended discussion perhaps um, on, on the sidelines on this. But, I mean, you know, first, I, I think you're right that I'm, I'm understating the amount of vertical uh, uh, progress, improvement, um, that has happened in the um, – uh, that as certain tools, particularly mathematical and statistical tools, have developed, that, that we're sort of much better we're, – we're, you know, think about the standard competitive market model, going back to Adam Smith, right? You know, Adam Smith did not have a model, but he had an intuition. Uh, and, uh, and it took sort of, you know, many, many generations, and ultimately, you know, Arrow and De Brew, uh, who produced sort of the first – Proof of the, you know, first complete proof of the, the you know, the, the efficiency of competitive equilibrium, uh, and then just like good models do, uh, they in, enables us to understand precisely when the invisible hand works. Right, that was the contribution of Aron de Bro and all those models was by by formalizing and mathematizing and being very clear. That was clearly you know, a, um, a, a sort of a vertical progress. So the, the model didn't change, but we now sort of understand it uh, much, much better. So in that way, I, I do think uh, that, there is, uh, that there, is, uh, there, is, there is certainly vertical progress. Um, and I don't, and also don't want to say that every silly model that, you know, if, you know, you know I don't know, let me take, I mean, a, a prejudicial mm. statement perhaps, Journal of Mathematical Economics, uh, you know, sort of, I'm sure most of the models in the Journal of Mathematical Economics are not useful and relevant, uh, you know, uh, except for as 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 sort of you know very as intellectual exercises in applied math, um, and uh, and so to that extent I, I agree with you too, um, and but as a profession what we need to do is is um, you know that that. There is a, 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 um, uh, a an option value to having all those models there, uh, because you know the the cost of that you know the, the the resource cost of that additional article in the Journal of Mathematical Economics is actually very low. We're not paying that much the assistant professor who's writing that model, uh, but you know you don't you don't know if it'll actually come in quite handy for you know, some future time or when you're going to be doing that. So from a you know, social optimality standpoint, I, I think we want to maintain a very wide variety and diversity of models and not have a very high threshold in terms of, is this model really relevant uh, before we actually sort of treat it as part of our library? But you know, I don't disagree. In the end, it's just going to be in every subfield, there's going to be between you know, six and 10 
you know, core models that you know, we'll be carrying uh, in, in our minds uh, that we're essentially trying to navigate among. That's an infinite improvement in many subfields from where we are now, where the, you know, the thinking is that we have one model. Uh, so I think that will be uh, you know, significant. And having six to ten models means that thousands of other models are, are, are essentially not being viewed as, as useful. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, you know, in the limit that we're not disagreeing, but I think in terms of the direction of change that uh, that, that I'm proposing is 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 significant from where we are now. I think. Yes, Danny. Thanks very much, um, Danny Kwa, London School of Economics. Thank you, Danny, for a really wonderful lecture. Can I press you a little bit? on your plea that we look for models that are more relevant. I think when we were all young, as PhD students, assistant professors, the appeal of there being a single model to be decided by objective means was great because it allowed us to get at the old people because we could say, this is what's right, this is what our investigations reveal. Now, as we get older, you know, we, that argument doesn't appeal to us so much anymore. So I wonder what you want to put forwards as the way by which we decide which models are the ones that are most relevant. And it can't be just which models fit the data better, because fitting the data better, again, falls back on the idea that there's a single true model. So which, what are the criteria we should all be thinking about as the way to decide which models are the most relevant? So, um, thank you. So, I mean, I'm not. Um, so, I, I, I guess in a way, I'm arguing precisely against that. I don't want to universalize this. So, by moving away from the notion, you know, that there is one single model, uh, I don't want to then move up one level of abstraction higher and then say we should then agree on which models are the relevant ones. Uh, so that defeats the purpose. Um, so the, the point is that we should. A, agree that what we do uh, is work with different models and that each one of them captures a different aspect of reality and that there's a fundamental sense in which you're never truly either accepting or rejecting a model because even if you reject a model in, you know, sort of in the United States in the second half of the, you know, uh, you know um, post-war era, that model may have been quite relevant uh, in the first uh, half and then may become relevant uh, in the decades ahead. So you're always, you know, your, your acceptance or, or, or rejection is always a contextual one. So in that sense, you know, you know fitting the data is never going to be the objective. Uh, at best, what you're doing is but I need to sort of know something about the United States now in 2015, and that's the decision I need to make. And I need, I need to figure out whether it's the classical or the Keynesian model that's going to be more relevant. I submit that if the official ideology, if the official methodology in economics was that, you know, that neither the Keynesian model nor the classical model is universally, that we don't have to make a choice between those. There are times when the Keynesian model is right and there are times when the classical model is right. Uh, and that uh, then we would have perhaps developed better techniques, uh, more sophisticated versions of what I laid out in one slide about how to choose among relevant models that would have made us uh, somewhat more 
uh, you know, somewhat better able to converge on the right models for a given time and context, instead of having this largely ideological debate. Okay? Now, there's an element of what you're saying, which is I haven't talked much about, which is there's also the element of technique. So a lot of time, uh, sort of, uh, I ref- that, that you know, some model gets ad- adopted or, or not has to do with whether a new model comes with a new technique, and because we're enamored of technique, then we love that model, not because we think that model is, is, is more useful, but because we think, oh, this is a really neat technique, and therefore we should use it. A large part of what I think has happened in macro, I think, is, is something of that sort. And we often, you know, you know we, we, we then lose the core of truth in that model. Let me give you an example now, just to stop harping on macro, to give an example from development economics. In, in the 1950s, you know, people talked about you know, so pe- peasants not being rational. Uh, then came Ted Schultz and said peasants are rational. Then for decades, sort of we completely sort of, you know, we had just you know, sort of rational peasant models. And you couldn't write down a model where peasants were not rational or talk about policy where peasants were not rational. Oh, well, now we have models, you know, of scarcity where, in fact, peasants are not rational because they not, you know, you know, you know, their their cognitive functions are impaired. We're not, not getting, in, you know, enough food and stuff. So all of a sudden, it's become, you know, okay to talk about a peasant that's that's not rational, but that's come as a result of, you know, a technique, uh, sort of, you know, uh, that that has come into economics, and and perhaps we should never have completely lost sight of, you know, that that earlier logic as well. Uh, and, and, and sort of just think about, okay, it, does it make more sense now to think of a model where the peasant is rational, or is it more where, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, it's one where presence is not rational? So, you know, I would still say that when you're dealing, for example, with relatively large shocks to an economy, you know, price of export, uh, exported rice goes up by 20%, I'm still likely to say that, you know, peasants are more likely to act rationally in that setting than not. You know, when they're making decisions about lending, borrowing, that's not going to have significant effect, maybe it might be a different model. But again, you know, it, you know it, it's, it's, it's to be contested rather than, uh, rather than uh, taken for granted. Okay. Um, yes, please. Yeah, yes, you. Um, you mentioned um, perhaps uh, something uh, lacking in the teaching of economics. Um, are you aware of the international um, collaborative effort from University College London that Wendy Carlin um, um, leads, um, and are you contributing to it? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm glad you, you raised it. I, I am aware of it, and uh, I'm actually uh, am, 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 am collaborating with, with part of that. Uh, I actually haven't, have not seen um, the sort of um, large part of what has been produced yet, but I'm, I think that's something that all of you should know, the INET um, sort of project on uh, gener- uh, sort of a new textbook in economics and so forth. So I think that's uh, I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. Yes. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Ian Mitchell. I'm a UK government economist, and uh, thank you for that. That was excellent. And I, I recognise lots of the misbehaviours of economists in my own behaviour, so I'll, I'll pay attention and, and try not to do that anymore. Um, I mean, you've given a kind of quite a stinging critique of lots of academic economics, and 
you know, and certainly from my perspective, there's huge swathes of academic journals that are completely abstracted from any real-world problems. So I think you're, you're being a bit gentle there and a bit laissez-faire about the way that academic economics works. So, but, I, you know, but I read your blogs and you pull together you know, different economic models and you make sense of them on trade policy and say, well, this is where I think the, the welfare gains are of Doha or whatever it is. So, so how do we incentivize, especially academic economists, to, to move into craft and, and away from you know, irrelevant models? A tough question. I mean, first, let me, let, me be, let me clarify that I mean, you called what, I, you know, what um, uh, you know, my presentation is thinking critique. I, actually, I, I'm, I'm fairly um, pos- you know, positive on economics. I mean, it's, uh, or maybe I should put it, you should have seen me two years ago before uh, I spent two years with cultural anthropologists. Um, the, uh, uh, so I, it's not a, um, you know, this wasn't really a, you know, a, you know put down job on, 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 on economics. In fact, I want to say that, that economics is useful. But there is this issue of, of, and I think you're going to the heart of it as to how to incentivize. Um, so I, I think a lot of the problem, problems happen in the interface um, of uh, the economics uh, discipline uh, with public policy or the media and the, and the, public, and the public sphere. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the only sort of, and in fact, and effectively, the market-driven solution, market-based solution to that is, is, is basically for more economists to get engaged. I mean, I, I, I know of a lot of people, a lot of economists whose views I do not agree with, but I'm glad that, that they are speaking out uh, because when discordant voices from the economics discipline is heard, uh, in the public debate, it at least signals to the public that there is greater variety of possible answers that can come from the discipline than uh, when, in fact, you know, the discipline speaks with a single voice. And I think there are certain areas where that problem of a single voice has been very problematic. You mentioned trade policy, for example. That's, you know, uh, there has been, you know, the public gets no idea, has no clue of the diversity of, of, of views that exist, or did, let me just put it, the diversity of models that exist in economics in terms of the possible outcomes of, uh, let's say, trade liberalization or trade agreements on, on economic performance. And that's because, by and large, the profession has spoken with relatively, uh, you know, single, uh, you know, sort of voice. Um, uh, and when you ask why, it's actually has always been because of this problem of implicit political economy theorizing, that there's always, you know, sort of you don't want to feed the barbarians, uh, that is to say you don't want to sound any skepticism, any note of skepticism that trade liberalization may not be good because then are all these barbarians, the protectionists are going to say, aha, you know, sort of look at him, he's a respectable economist who's saying that maybe trade liberalization is not going to produce growth. Um, so so I think one generic solution is just to to expand, uh, you know, the public um, sort of, you know, the interaction. And, and, and uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm encouraged by is the fact that this is already happening significantly. The blogosphere and social media, I think, have on the whole been tremendously positive here. And therefore and now, uh, you know, you hear, I think, a much greater variety of views. Um, and on many issues, I think, um, you know, that there is – space has opened up uh, that simply did not exist before. I mean, I've, I've often in my presentation, I gave the example of minimum wage. You know, I think 
what is it, 20, 25 years ago, uh, that would be like a you know, trade liberalization issue. You couldn't possibly get any economist to say that you know, raising the minimum wage would be good. Um, and I think now it's so you, you hear all kinds of, of different things. Um, so uh, so you know, that, I think all of that is the good. I, you know, I'm not, again, I'm actually relatively optimistic. I mean, the, the profession has changed significantly. You know, the, the, the role that behavioral economics has now uh, compared to sort of allowing non-rational behavior, I mean, it just was unimaginable the, you know, how empirical the profession has gotten relative to when I did my uh, doctoral studies. It just, you know, like night and day has changed a lot. So I think all of that suggests to me that, that there's a, a lot of capacity for, you know, for potential for change in economics and that, that I think by and large uh, that's, that sort of has happened for, for better. So I'm, I guess I'm a lot more optimistic than you. I think, you know, that, 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 that things are moving, um, uh, moving for the better. Okay, so let's see. Maybe uh, just one final. I, 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 sorry, I have not reached. I, I have completely ignored everybody up there. I'm so sorry. I apologize. Um, so I'm just going to, let's see, who will I say? You know, there's, there's, uh, the, the gentleman there with the tie, yeah. I'm not a I'm not economist. I mean, I studied economics, but 43 years ago, I left the last lecture when I was studying. I think when I look at all, listen to you, thank you very much. It was very great. I, you talk a lot about all these different models. It seems what, when, when we have a problem, we are trying to see which one of these models fits our problem. The gentleman asked a question. I think the time has come maybe for new generation of hypothesis, question and criteria for assessment to come to place rather than fitting question problems into existing uh, uh, models we have got to create new models based on new generation of questions. And that's the way we can actually involve public. And not just dealing with everyday qu uh, recent question, which has been going on for many years, but other models should include humanity, poverty, refugee, and other things. And that's the way, that's the time that we can involve public, I think. And uh, the time has come for change. Thank you. I, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. I certainly argued for um, sort of, you know, you know the, the science of economics expanding by adding to its library of models. And that, that also includes dealing with the kinds of things that you're talking about to the consternation of many non-economists in social science because, you know, we get, uh, you know, involved in all kinds of things that don't have to do strictly speaking with markets and economics and that gets us into trouble and, and you know, others say that this is not your domain, you don't know what you're talking about. I disagree, obviously, with that, because I think we have a very powerful tool. It's called a model, uh, and I think we're very good at that. <laughs> so um, I think we should um, uh, uh, probably stop here, and, and let me thank you very much for, um, for, for your questions, and thank you very much.